What's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Uh, yes, Mariah Carey Christmas, man. That joint is the goat of all albums. Uh, we can argue in the cafeteria after service if you have a different uh, favorite. Hey, so uh, if you're new to Renaissance or you're not really connected, one of my, my biggest hopes when we first started Renaissance was that we could just do something really simple. It, it sounds simple, but it's been pretty difficult to do. And that's to just connect people to Jesus Christ and to each other. Now, one of the ways we connect with people here is a really simple, practical way is that we just don't want y'all walking out being nameless strangers. I'm glad if you guys come and you like the worship and the teaching and the community, but we want to make sure we're connecting with you. And so right after service, we have a little gift for you, and we would love it if you went to room 134. It's right on your way to the cafeteria for the party afterwards. And uh, we have a little gift, and we want to take two minutes of your time to make sure that you are not a nameless stranger and we can connect with you. Now, no doubt about it, Renaissance, I'm biased, but Renaissance is the greatest community of faith on the planet, the best church in the world. Yes. One of the things I love about Renaissance is that we have people from literally every walk of life. We have a lot of people who grew up never going to church. Uh, we have some people who grew up Catholic, some people who grew up in the Nation of Islam. Uh, we got Presbyterians and Pentecostals. You know, you can tell who the Pentecostals were. The Presbyterians are sitting there like, oh, that's, that's nice. We're here too. And as different as we all are in our, in our coming up and um, our, our history and our life and our culture, there's something that's common for all of us. There's sometimes I get on stage and I'm talking about a topic that I know hits one group more than others, and I try to make it relatable or as relatable as possible. Uh, but there are other times when I know that every single person under the sound of my breath needs exactly what we're talking about that day. And all of us, regardless of your background, all of us need something called hope. Just as a car needs gasoline, our hearts and our souls need hope. As a matter of fact, we can't live without it. I would even go so far as to say that you cannot have a relationship with God that is vibrant and anything worth having unless you have hope. Now, hope is a really difficult word to define because the English equivalent is really not a good one. In English, hope is kind of like, I, I want something to happen. I, I wish something happens. Two months ago, the internet was ablaze with the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Uh, <laughs> And I was on Twitter scouting down, you know, where there might be a, a Popeye's chicken sandwich. Um, and uh, one night I went out, and this is how bad I, I really wanted the sandwich. I rented a zip car, which is like one of those hourly cars, <laughs> to drive around to as many stores as possible. I said, I'm going to go to the Bronx. I don't know if Puerto Ricans eat chicken like that. Uh, I knew it was done in Harlem. I'm like, yeah, it's a wrap in Harlem. And on my way out the door, my wife said, hey, are you going to get the sandwich? And I said, I hope so. It's a statement of a wish, of a desire. The biblical concept of hope is, is actually the opposite of stating something as like, oh, I hope this happens. Uh, the biblical concept of hope is certainty. It's something that some authors in the Bible have called an anchor. You know what an anchor is? An anchor is something you have on a boat that goes down deep and it buries itself in the bedrock of the ocean. And no matter what is going on above the surface, doesn't affect the boat because it is anchored. 
Hope is something that's meant to keep you in place. One author in the Bible talks about it like this. He says, faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the certainty, look at that word, the certainty of things not seen. Hope functions as a proxy. It is a certainty of things that we don't see yet that allows us to, to keep faith. A biblical hope is a life-changing, a life-shaping certainty about the future. Or put it a different way, biblical hope is living now in a way that is future-oriented. Living now completely changed because of what you know will happen in the future. Now, without it, we can't even have a spiritual life with God. There's a story about a man named Viktor Frankl, and he was a, a Jewish doctor that was put into the death camps during World War II. Uh, he survived, and he came out and wrote about his experiences. One of the things he noticed, which was really profound to me, was that he could tell who was going to survive the death camps based on their level of hope. He said if a prisoner lost hope in the future, they were doomed. Uh, he gave this one example. He said one of his friends in the camp had a dream that on March 30th, the war was going to end. He told all his friends and told everyone in the camp, all you have to do is hold on until March 30th because I have received this prophecy that on March 30th, the war is going to end. As the days got closer and closer to March 30th, he started to realize that his dream wasn't going to come true. On March 29th, he got sick. On March 30th, he was in a coma. On March 31st, he had died. His loss of hope literally reduced and made, it, made his body unable to fight off all um, the, the cold and the different um, things going against him in camp and the diseases and different things of that nature. And what Viktor Frankl positioned and posited to us was that you can't live without hope. I once heard a wise person say it like this, you can go about 40 days without food, three days without water, five minutes without air, but not a single second without hope. The second we lose it, we begin to die. Now, as a pastor, I've seen this happen a lot, actually, uh, not physically, but spiritually in people's lives. They're a shell of a person. Usually, by the time they come to my office, uh, they've already been pretty damaged. What happens is we, we call it something else. Like, we don't call it hopelessness. Uh, we call it uh, cynicism or something like that. Now, every good New Yorker needs a good amount of cynicism. But there's a, a, a certain type of spiritual cynicism that, that affects us that actually makes us no, no longer believe that we can have anything good from God. If you're not careful, that cynicism actually leads itself towards completely losing a prayer life. I've seen this happen in my own life, actually, where I prayed and prayed and prayed for something to happen, and it doesn't happen, and then I just lose hope. I'm no longer certain that God is with me or that God is for me. And it starts to shape everything about me. And slowly but surely, I've seen my spiritual life erode. Now, hope is really important. Now, the opposite thing is also true. What if you really did have confidence? Like real confidence that God was with you and that God was for you in every single step of the way. What would that do to your life? There's a story about a group of sixth, uh, sixth graders at uh, PS121. And this is in the 1980s in East Harlem, and the school was doing really, really bad. And the teachers and the administration, they were trying to find anything that they can do to help promote attendance and better uh, scores and uh, to reduce the amount of kids skipping school. So they were desperate, and they reached out to this one guy uh, by the name of Eugene Lang. Eugene Lang had gone to that school 50 years before 
uh, himself, and they brought him in to talk to these sixth graders and give them a message of, of hope. Now, I don't know if you've ever spoken to a group of sixth graders, but it is the worst audience on the planet. No offense to the middle schoolers in the room. Um, we're starting a middle school ministry in January, by the way. Uh, yes. And it will not be led by me. And uh, so he's, he's nervous as, uh, he's super nervous, and he's walking up to the stage, and he's trying to prepare and think to himself, like, what am I going to say to 61 sixth graders that is going to keep their attention? Like, what am I going to say to these kids that's going to make them actually want to hear me? So he had this whole speech prepared that he was going to say that once upon a time, I went to this school. And if you work really hard, and if you study, and if you do all the right things, you too could become a millionaire just like me. He realized that that wasn't going to work. So in a moment, he tossed aside his notes and decided to speak from the heart. Looked at the kids and said, if you finish high school, I'll pay for your college. That year, more than 90%, that class of kids, more than 90% of those kids ended up graduating and going to school. That school had about a 30% graduation rate, and it tripled. What changed? It wasn't the homes. It wasn't the teachers. It was just some hope. Hope shapes everything about you. Hope makes us live in such a way that, some, that there are things that are possible for us that we may or may not have believed to be true before. They lived with the certainty that of what would happen in the future, and it's powerful. So if hope is so powerful that we need it, and if hope is so powerful that it can change everything about our spiritual lives, then where do we, where do we get it? Now, I want to turn to a portion of Scripture that at first glance, you're going to think to yourself, there's no way in the world that this is going to tell me anything in life that's, that's meaningful. And it comes from uh, Matthew 1, uh, also known as a genealogy of Jesus also known as the Begats. Uh, and that sounds like a gang, right? You've got the Crips, the Bloods, and the Begats. <laughs> it's called the Begats because it's this long section of Scripture where it just talks about, and this person begat, Isaac begat this person, and this person begat Aminadab, and it's all these different names. And when you first read it, uh, um, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of stuff that's relevant. But one thing I've noticed uh, about life and about Scripture over the years of be being a Christian is that a lot of times when you read something and it doesn't seem like there has, there's any purpose for it being in the Bible, a lot of times those are the, like, the most important scriptures in the Bible. So like if you read something and it's like, I don't know what that means, don't just like rush to skip ahead. Spend some time and ask yourself the question, why did the author put this in the Bible? So Matthew 1 starts like this. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram. I remember a couple of years ago when I was um, starting my uh, Bible reading plan, and January 1st is a time when a lot of Christians start their reading plans. How many people in here have done that? Yep. All right, let's go around the room. Let's see how long we made it. January? <laughs> February, March, anybody make it till, till, till June? Okay, we got some June people. And I remember sitting down, and this was the first day. I sat down at the desk. I was hype. I was like, yo, this is a year. I'm about to like really go hard in, in the scripture this year. And this was the first chapter, and I was like, yo, this is going to be a long, it's going to be a long year. 
But a lot of times that's where a lot of the gold is. And it, it picks up in verse 17 uh, after it goes through a lot of the begats. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until Christ, another 14 generations. Now, I just want to talk about two things from these scriptures that I think are going to hopefully lead us to a place of having some hope. Two things from these scriptures, and then we're going to go to the cafeteria and eat some fried chicken. (laughs) One, God takes his time. Two, God's faithfulness does not depend upon us. Number one, God takes his time. So right out the gate, we see uh, that what some scholars would say is a 1,700-year period of a gap between when God comes to Abraham and promises him that he was going to be the father of many nations. So in verse 17, you see that Jesus is linked to these two people, David and to Abraham, and these are something called covenants, that God made covenants, these promises to these two people. To Abraham, he says, Abraham, come out your tent. Uh, And I want you to look up to the stars. And Abraham and his wife didn't have any kids. He says, your offspring will outnumber the stars that you see in the sky. He goes to David centuries later and says, David, who was a king in Israel, says, there's another king that's coming through your lineage, and his kingdom is going to be so profound and so enduring that there will be no end to it. And in between the promise and the fulfillment, there's always a gap. In this case, it was 1,700 years at least of a gap in between when God promised something and when there was a fulfillment. Yo, 1,700 years is a very, very long time. 1,700 years is almost as long as it's been since the Knicks have made the playoffs. (laughs) Almost. Now, what does this teach us? What does the genealogy teach us about God and his nature? So that's a question I always want to ask when I'm reading something. What does this teach me about God and his nature? A lot of times we come to the Bible thinking, hey, what do I need to do? And to a certain extent, the Bible does tell us that, but that's nowhere near the most important question. The most important question is always, who is God? Right? That's always the most important question. Who is God? Who am I? Then what should I do as a result? So what does this teach us about God and his nature? And right out the the gate, we see that you can't judge God by your calendar. If you, wanna, if you want to make an assessment of God and his faithfulness, it won't work by us looking at our own measurements of time. Our windows of time are, are pretty short. We like to look at God in small segments and evaluate our progress or lack thereof in, in pretty small snippets of time. And here's what we see. From generation to generation, 42 generations of people, God had been working behind the scenes. And to them, it looked like God was silent. But God was still working. Jesus in John 5 tells the Pharisees when he's having an argument, he says, my father is always working. And there's a piece of all of us that when we have to wait too long for something, we start to doubt that God is even with us or if God is for us. Now, December is an interesting time because uh, December is when we kind of look back on the year that was. And so many of us go into the new year. We're going to January, new year, new decade, clean slate. New year, new me. But December is a time when we kind of look back on the year that was. And for a lot of you, it's not not an easy time. You had goals and aspirations for 2019 that didn't happen. Even worse, 
in some areas, life got much worse. Things that you never thought were going to happen happened, and you would, you would trade in a heartbeat just to go back to what you were in the beginning of the year. In these moments, when we're evaluating our, our time, we're evaluating what has happened, man, what we really, really need to do more than anything is to remember that God takes his time. Now, this is true in the macro sense of God coming to us in, in Christ, but this is also true in the lives of every single person that God has dealt with in Scripture. Over and over and over again in the Bible, you see God coming to someone with a promise, and there's always a gap. There's always a delay in between the promise and the fulfillment. You and I will never reap in the same season that we sow. We take a seed and we, we bury it, and it's hidden. And for months at a time, nothing is happening. But beneath the surface, something is happening. In the genealogy, we see that beneath the surface of all of these different names, God was working. God was active. And what God calls us to do is to respond to him with a simple thing called trust and endurance. Now, hope, having a real hope, understanding that God takes his time, that's the only way that you and I could have endurance. And endurance is one of the most, uh, man, we, don't, we can't talk about it enough. In Christianity, what I've noticed is that so many people want to be fueled up with energetic, explosive moments of faith. And those are amazing. I love them just as much as the next person does. But equally important as passion and excitement is endurance. When I was a, a junior in college, um, we had our postseason workouts on the basketball team. And we had a tryout, and we had a, a new group of people who had joined the team. And this one guy, it was his first time working out with us. And we knew that the workout started with a warm-up mile, meant to be jogged at a warm-up pace. This dude had never run with us before, and he thought that this was like the, the one mile in the Olympics. Oh, I don't know what he thought he was doing, but as soon as the coach said go, this dude was ghost. Like, he ran the first lap at an Usain Bolt pace. <laughs> and I was like, yo, either this dude is in phenomenal shape, or he's about to gas out real quick. By the second lap, he was getting lapped like crazy, and he didn't even finish the mile. He had to walk it towards the end. He had all this energy, all this excitement, but no endurance. I've seen a lot of people start well and then fizzle out. I think one of the reasons that people lose endurance is because we just don't have a concept of the way and the nature in which God works is that God takes his time. And if you judge God's faithfulness on your calendar, you're always going to struggle to believe that he's good and that he's with you. The second thing about the scripture, what it shows us about who God is, is that, uh, actually, let me read this quote that my boy uh, tweeted. Uh, this is how I get most of my sermon materials on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> he read this and I was like, yo, this is too good. I got to drop this in your lap. Uh, here's what he said. He says, when it comes to making sense of God's work in your life, you make a better historian than you do detective. Historians reflect on the past to help make sense of present circumstances. Detectives solve mysteries. God works in mysterious ways, and you're not Sherlock Holmes. Now, God fulfills his promises, all of them, and you and I can wait with expectation and hope. Now, the genealogy of Jesus also teaches us something that's profound, and it's something that I've heard a thousand times, and I forget it, uh, almost every single day, and it's this. God's faithfulness does not depend on us. God's faithfulness does not depend on us. And we'll never have like a real confident expectation in God if it kind of comes down to us, 
right? Like if it depends on how you did on Tuesday, like will you ever be able to really have confidence? Or will you just constantly be on this treadmill of performance, always trying to just keep up and keep up? That will never lead us towards confidence. When we look at this genealogy, we see how completely messed up all of these people were, and God was still faithful to coming. And what does it show us about the nature of God? It shows us that it's not that the people are faithful and they're waiting, but rather that God is faithful in his coming to us. Jacob is a great example of this. In verse 2, it says, Isaac was a father of Jacob, and it says, Jacob was a father of Judah. Now, how did Jacob uh, come to be the father of Judah? Uh, so Jacob, uh, his name actually truly means liar. Uh, Jacob was a con man. Back in those days, there was uh, something where the oldest child, the oldest son, would inherit uh, the majority of the estate. Jacob had an older brother named Esau that he wanted his share of the estate. So Jacob conned his father, who had poor vision, into giving him the blessing so that he could have the estate. After Jacob conned his father, his brother found out, and his brother was going to kill him. Jacob goes on a run, and he's running away for his life. His, complete, his family is completely fractured. Everything is in complete disarray because of Jacob's sin and his uh, failures. Jacob then meets, while he's on the run, running away for his life, he meets Rachel. Rachel is the one who gives birth to their son, Judah, and, all their other, uh, and the rest of the brothers. Now, what does it show us about the nature of God? That Jesus Christ came through the lineage of Jacob and Rachel. Jacob would have never met Rachel if he hadn't have conned his brother and gone on a run. Did God want Jacob to do that? Absolutely not. But it shows us that God's faithfulness in our life is not dependent on us. God uses and has used completely flawed and messed up people over and over again throughout Scripture. This entire list of people are some of the worst offenders you'll see in Scripture. You have murderers, rapists, con men, liars, prostitutes, Patriots fans. You have the list of people who have done horrible things. Hey, God is still working out his purposes. For the people who've come into church today, with, in your mind, knowing what you have done, and in your brain, you have just concocted this formula of what needs to happen in order for God to be close to you, to receive you as his own. When I first became a Christian in college, man, I just had so much guilt based on what I had been doing and, and wilding out in college. And I just, I heard the messages, like I heard the Bible studies, I believed to a certain extent. I believed that God could do that in other people's lives, but there was still so much of me that just felt like I got to just like really earn a good spot in life. Let me tell you what that did to me. It turned me into a complete and absolute jerk. I did all of the spiritual disciplines just so I can be better than other people because I was running away from all the mistakes that I had made. I never sat down and, and just truly received the fact that God loved me. It was so foreign and distant of a concept to me that it never made its way into my heart. The gospel message that God came and for God so loved the world that he gave his son, I would hear it and it, and it wouldn't make its way into my heart because I was believing that God's faithfulness depended on me. I had the wrong formula. And when you and I have the wrong formula, the wrong approach to God, we'll always have the wrong output. When I was a high school junior, um, man, I took trigonometry. And math teachers, you guys are 
very necessary for society. However, I just, I've never used an isosceles triangle. I've never used it. I don't know why they had it. So I had this uh, high school trigonometry, and that joint would be so confusing, man. I ended up, actually, I failed the Regents. Shout out to everybody who grew up in New York and took Regents exams. Um, but I would read a question like, so if y equals 2, then the cosine minus y is Abraham Lincoln's little brother. I'm like, where does... What, what is going on? Yes, Sakatoa. That gives me chills thinking about that. <laughs> I remember uh, sitting in summer school, taking the remedial course in order to get ready for the Regents again, and the teacher was hovering over all of us to prepare us for the test, and he said, Jordan, show your work. Show your work. You have to show me how you got to what you, where you got to. And even though I had my dope TI-83 calculator, you know what I'm saying? It didn't matter what kind of calculator I had because I was putting in the wrong formulas. And if you put in the wrong formula in, you'll always get the wrong result after. Some of us have the wrong formula when it comes to God. We believe that if we are good, and I mean really good, then God will love us. The right formula is because God loves us, he will make us good. Paul says it like this in Romans, uh, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Let me stop there for a quick second. So Paul says uh, something that's, he's going to hug us for in, a, in a second, but this is a little bit of a punch in the stomach. He says, you're all dead. Now, dead people don't contribute anything to their life. Paul could have said, you were all like really sick. You all had the flu. He doesn't say that. He says, you were all dead so that none of us take any credit to firmly, firmly establish the formula that we were dead and God makes us alive. So it continues in the scripture and it says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of the flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. And then come the two sweetest words in the entirety of the Bible, but God, but God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You are saved by grace, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can brag or boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. God's faithfulness does not depend on us. Now, God's activity in your life will certainly lead you towards drastic changes. I've seen my life change so much over these last uh, two decades but one of the things that I really want to make sure we're all leaving here understanding is that God's grace in your life certainly is not opposed to your effort, right? God doesn't not want you to try. God wants us to try and to, and to desire and pursue the life that he has for us. God's grace is not opposed to our effort, but it is opposed to us earning. A child doesn't earn anything from their parents. Yesterday, my son and I were um, helping to set up and bring some tables downstairs and, you know, in exchange for him slowing me down and bringing the tables <laughs> downstairs, 
we went to Dunkin' Donuts and got a donut after word. That was his payment. Did he earn that donut? Absolutely not. <laughs> All he did was make my day worse. Man, the love of God our Father invites us into a real relationship with him, that we would see his coming in Jesus, in the gene- genealogy, not as a dad who is coming to show us the list of all the things that we've done wrong, to show us what the scales look like, but rather a dad who has come to make us his children. That's the goal of the gospel. Forgiveness is a great concept. Forgiveness is a phenomenal concept. All forgiveness means is that I won't hold this against you. That's a part of the gospel, but that's nowhere near the whole entirety of the gospel. The whole gospel is not that I just forgive you, but now I make you my child. There's a story about a guy named Carlos Valpaios whose daughter went missing in Peru. And as soon as she went missing, uh, he got rid of his job, his old life in Texas as a contractor, and he got on a plane to find her. Having just a, a book bag and some toiletries, Carlos immediately went on, uh, on the hunt in search of his daughter who had gone missing. As he interviewed home after home and police officer after police officer, no one knows what happened and why she disappeared, but when they talked to Carlos, it doesn't matter. His child who was lost was lost and he was going to find her. When God has come for us, as we see from generation to generation, it's much more like Carlos than it is an angry boss who's trying to hold over your head what you didn't do last week. It's a father who has come for us, as Romans 5 says, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for the, for the ungodly. God's faithfulness does not depend on you, but rather God calls us to live faithful because he is faithful to us. Now, if you've been around Christianity and church for a while and you're a follower of Jesus, what I hope you do is I hope that you evaluate your formula for how you think God operates and put that formula against Ephesians 2 and see what happens. And I pray that you lay down your guilt and your anxiety and you pick up some hope that this is not of me, this is the gift of God. For those of you who are new and, listen, maybe your friend invited you today and you don't even know really where you stand or what to make of all of this, but you just feel something in your heart that, man, why would I run from a God like this? Uh, In your connection card, you should have gotten a next step card, which is basically the invitation to start a conversation, to start a conversation about what it would look like for you to take your next step in faith. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are with us and that you are for us. Lord, I pray that as we even evaluate this beautiful genealogy, this list of people, flawed people, broken people, that we would see your faithfulness in our lives and that we would turn our eyes away from ourselves and turn them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.